This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Susan White, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. Susan is a Melbourne-based doctor and writer. She is a clinical geneticist who researches undiagnosed genetic conditions in children. Cut is her first novel for adults. It was shortlisted for the Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Award in 2017. It tells the story of a young doctor striving to become the first female surgeon in a major Melbourne hospital where institutionalised misogyny and sexism are rife. Wow, big subjects, big book. Yes, um, I'm possibly brave and maybe a little bit stupid to take on some big ambitious issues, but they're things I'm passionate about, so I guess it follows that logic of writing something you really want to kind of get your teeth into and understand. Do you know, I think there is some industries that have been left behind in terms of moving forward and I think the medical profession is one of them, for sure. And I also think the legal profession is another, where, you know, it astounds me that they're, you know, relatively high intelligent occupations, yet I have heard so many stories in, in the public domain here where sexism, misogyny, uh, racism, all sorts of things are rife in these two organisations, right? or two professions, if you like. So tell me about your career and and why you decided to write the book. Yeah, so I guess I'm now living a kind of dual career. Um, I trained as a doctor when I came out of high school. and Why? Well, Cheryl, that's a fabulous question. And if I'm brutally honest, I did it because I got into medicine and, and it was a career that, brought with it prestige and a lot of approval from people around me. There are elements of medicine that I cherish and adore the capacity to connect with people in some of the most vulnerable situations of their lives is something that I think is a great privilege for a health professional. Having said that, if I think about myself as at high school, the things that really kind of floated my boat and really you know, got me out of bed in the morning and made my soul happy were music and writing. So maybe I wasn't listening carefully to the careers advisor. I don't know. Um, It is a long time ago now. So yeah, I did medicine and then trained as a pediatrician and then as a genetics doctor. Uh, It's no accident that I've found myself in a specialty where connecting and talking to people is a a big part of what I do as a doctor. Uh, I want to go back to when you're a student doctor and I want to know about your experience there because I interviewed um, a wonderful woman, young woman called Yumiko. Kadota. 
Kudota and on her experience of being a, a doctor, firstly a student doctor and then a doctor, and it was pretty horrendous, right? Yeah, her book's an amazing, powerful record of what it was like for her as a as a student and then trying to train in plastic surgery predominantly, I think. For me as a medical student, bearing in mind this was some decades ago now, was definitely a an environment where almost all the authority figures were male and um, the culture, I think, in that setting educationally and certainly in the hospital system once as a student, once you get to a certain level of seniority, you start to get experience in the hospital setting was a very um, hierarchical and combative one and an environment where rational intelligence, you know, you were talking before about how law and medicine you know, these environments where really cerebral conversations are happening. I think there's a real value placed, a high value placed on that that type of intelligence, but perhaps not much attention or merit given to emotional intelligence and some of the other ways in which our brains can function at high levels. And personally, I think that creates a, a culture that has that really combative, competitive element, very hierarchical, quite traditional, and that that contributes to an environment where misogyny can persist, where the rest of society has perhaps moved to a better place. Mm. You know what I've always found astounding, and, you know, a lot of my research has come from television, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt, right? But there is particularly medicine in what I've seen, and I have known, you know, a few doctors, those excruciating long hours, those, you know, working until you can't stand up anymore, staying awake until, you know, you, you crash for five days, all those things that we're told in life aren't healthy for us. Yeah, what a paradox that is, hey, and and also hide your emotions. If a, a patient you're caring for dies, don't get too involved and few opportunities, certainly in the junior parts of my career, I think things are improving now, but a, a general trend of hide your emotional reaction to patients, don't connect with them overly or get too attached as a protective measure. But again, we would probably judge that as not very healthy either. And it's no accident that there's high rates of, you know, alcoholism, suicide, mental health problems in health professionals. And that's all pre-pandemic, of course. And also, too, that that whole emotional thing is meant to be what you, you're robotic. Like you go and see a doctor to hope that they're human, that they've got empathy, and that they can fix up all the things you've got. Uh, how many women were in your group back then? Yeah, it's it's very interesting to look back on this because actually, in the medical student kind of gender distribution. It's been 50-50 for a long time, like decades. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah, so even in my year, which, you know, would have been um, late 80s kind of time, there was a very generous and healthy proportion of females studying medicine. But what's interesting is that that still has not translated, even decades later, right, it's still not translated into equal proportion in positions of power, particularly in public hospitals, particularly in certain specialties. So there are 
there are specialties where women are very well represented now and making fantastic inroads and drawing awareness to some of these issues. But particular specialties, I would say, like intensive care, cardiology, surgery, that still the major positions of power in many hospitals are head, held by men. I think that makes it harder for female trainees coming up in the system, harder to be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. And also I think it has the potential to perpetuate a culture that doesn't allow a diverse range of people to thrive. You know, um, the teaching professions like that, there are hundreds. I mean, I don't know what the proportion is for women to men teachers, but it has to be in the high 80s at least. And as I said, I'm just making that up. But, uh, you know, when you look at who's who who are the principals, it'd have to be around 80% males. It's yeah. extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I think when those those positions are filled by one particular group of society, and I guess I'm really largely talking about middle-aged white males, then they have a strong influence on the workplace culture. Mm, they do indeed. So you worked your way up. Why this specialisation? What led you to be a clinical geneticist? I think that... Um, Genetics really attracted me because inherent in it is human connection and what a genetics doctor does is is work with families who have a child with problems that are likely to have a genetic basis and that setup is often a really difficult one for families. Most genetic conditions don't have specific treatments or and most don't have any type, any hope of a cure. And so you're dealing with families in a very vulnerable situation. And I can remember training as a paediatrician and working in a in neonatal intensive care where, you know, you've got all these very sick babies and the genetics team came down and broke a, a diagnosis to a family. And they allowed me to sit in while that diagnosis was being spoken about. And while it was a horrendous experience for that family, that the way the doctors communicated for me was very authentic, sensitive, and I think they did the best job they could with breaking terrible news and I thought I can do that. That's within my, within the things I really care about but also Mm. perhaps within the things I know are perhaps my skill set. So what kind of diseases are we talking about generally? A good example might be Down syndrome as something that people would be aware of. And I guess we don't actually see a heap of kids with Down syndrome because mostly they're diagnosed and managed by their paediatrician. But there are thousands of rare genetic conditions like Down syndrome and those kids get to us. So there are often conditions that are associated with a developmental disability, organ problems, Um, and sometimes physical differences that set the kids apart. So it's all of that, I guess, wrapped up together. Mm. And when we're talking about genetics, and I've probably got the wrong view here, we're not talking about the fact that it's handed down, are we? That's a super question. Right. So we're really talking about anything that can be caused by a problem in your DNA. So some DNA problems are handed down, inherited, but 
lots of genetic problems start as a new problem in that child. So like Down syndrome is a good example. So it can be either way, but you're 100% right. Genetic doesn't necessarily mean inherited. Okay. So you've been working in that field and that can't be easy because, you know, is there many happy times in a job like that? A lot of the families I see, will, the most honest ones will say, you know, we we really hope we never see you again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the sure. nicest possible way and it's taken in the nicest possible way. Um, there, there, there aren't that many happy times. I think there are a lot of very beautiful um, times. Uh, I get to walk alongside families through the lifetime of their child with their genetic condition and that's really precious to me but you're right mm. it's not an area of medicine where there's no magic tablets there's no operation that we can do to make things better so yeah it definitely does um take a toll and i think pretty early on after my training i realized i couldn't do it full time for me uh the burden of seeing people in difficult situations was was too much if I if that was all I did and around that time I started to get into creative writing and I realized that I wanted to make that a part of my life and I needed a better balance of those two things. Before we get to creative writing and and that's the next point but I just want to go back to a genetic question that I don't know the answer to. So if genetics happens and you have a Down syndrome child is there a prevention with genetics? Like is it how do you prevent that same genetic malfunction, if you like, happening again? Is that possible? So it does depend a bit on what the primary genetic problem is. Um, right. And, you know, so there are some genetic conditions where if we make a diagnosis, we can say to the parents, if you have another pregnancy, the chance of this happening again is super low and they get that reassurance and that's enough for them and they can go on and plan another pregnancy with a bit of confidence that they know now what's going on for their child and they know that there's a low chance of it happening again. There are other genetic conditions where, you know, both parents carry something and the child's inherited a double dose of that and we can't change the DNA either of the parents or the sperm or the egg but there are options that some families choose, things like IVF where we can select embryos that don't have the condition in the family so that the family... Oh, so you can do that in IVF. Yeah. If you know what the exact precise nature of the genetic problem is, you can have what's called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So it's before IVF or it's sort of part of the IVF process they can look for the specific condition in the family, in the embryos that are conceived in the test tube. Yeah. And only select unaffected embryos to transfer to the mother's uterus to hopefully make an ongoing pregnancy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So you know how um, the BRCA gene seems to be prevalent in its passing on? If you've got that in the family, you're very likely to have it, aren't you? I mean, it's can, a 50-50 scenario, yeah. Is it? Yeah. Mm. Can you do anything about that? Yeah. So some families with BRCA1 or 2, the two main breast cancer genes, some families do choose to use options like IVF and select unaffected embryos. You know, there's there's a lot of ethical questions you have to think about when you're making those kinds of choices. But for some families, having witnessed the suffering that family members have been through with breast or ovarian cancer, they will make a choice that they don't want to pass that on to the next mm. generation. And there are ways that that can be avoided if they want to do that. Mm. Incredible. Science is so incredible. Okay, so let's talk about the fact that you needed to do something else. And so it's right brain, left brain, I'd imagine. Uh, tell me about that process and when you thought that, okay, maybe I need to start writing. Yeah, so I was living overseas at the time, just sort of finishing off my or doing some of my genetics training, living in London. And it's interesting looking back on it. I don't know whether it was being far away kind of allowed me to be a bit more adventurous perhaps, but I just took a couple of short courses in creative writing. And I also used The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron's book, and I just found myself feeling really energised by the process and kind of remembering what it felt like to make stuff and do something creative. So when I came back to Melbourne, it was over the time that I was having my family, so I kind of was working a little bit in the hospital system. I had two kids in that time, but I did a I did the course at RMIT in professional writing and editing, and that was an amazing experience for me as a kind of fledgling writer. And, yeah, I think I just followed the feeling more than anything else. So there was some some part of me in my heart going, oh, yes, thank God she's finally worked out that this is a good thing for her. So, yeah, once I'd... Was it because you loved it? Is it because you approached it so differently? Like, you know, a lot of writers, as you well know, find the challenge of writing actually doing the writing very difficult, the discipline, the, you know, putting out the word count, the writing every day. What was that like for you? That was not an issue for me. And I think, you know, I guess every writer has the bits that they agonise over, don't they? Um, Of course. For me, I reckon the hard part is shutting up my left brain. So I don't have any issue with getting myself to writing. Maybe I started even before medicine as a pretty stubborn and determined kind of person. So I don't have any issue getting to the page, but I do have an issue with taking risks as a writer and really letting my imagination go nuts. And Is that because you've been so disciplined in your day career in medicine? Yeah, I think so. And I think that sort of logical critic part of my brain has had its own way for a long time. So it's been sort of king of the of the thought process and it chimes in pretty readily whenever I 
think, oh, something wacky could happen here in the story, you know. So I've had to learn lots of different ways to try and just free myself up a bit. That's that's a challenge for me. Uh, but the other elements that I know, I have lots of friends who are writers and I, I, I think I irritate them quite a lot by the fact that I can sit and write very readily and, you know, I'm very happy to write for half an hour first thing in the morning. I'll write here and there. I, that doesn't bother me at all. But rest assured, I have I have wrestled with trying to allow my imagination to tell the story it wants to tell and, and let the story be what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. So you didn't deviate from what you knew, did you, in writing fiction? No, I, I, I definitely didn't. And I guess... I was drawn to the you know those the ideas that I've that I write about in Cut and also in my young adult novel are very close to my working life and informed by that. I think those ideas were things that that felt tangible to me and and also had energy. So I really followed that where I felt that energy was. I and I guess it makes it more authentic as well. So you wrote for a while. At what point did you decide, okay, I think I'm going to enter this into a prize or I think it's ready to be published? Or because you know, you're working in the dark, aren't you, when you're working on a manuscript? Yeah, and it's had a lot of different sort of iterations and twists and turns for sure. Um yeah, I worked on cut for quite a long time. And in fact, in the early versions, I had my main character, Carla. I, I knew who she was quite strongly and I could feel that she was an outsider to the world of surgery, but I didn't really have the story beyond that. So I had sort of certain elements that have persisted into the current version, but I didn't really know what was going to happen to her. And then, you know, I guess with the advent of Me Too and some of the other movements and some of the stories that were emerging out of, particularly out of surgery, of women's experience. And I remember quite vividly, um, there was one particular story where a very senior surgeon told a junior female trainee that if she was propositioned for sex by one of her bosses, the easiest thing to do was to acquiesce, even if she didn't want to. Oh my God. (laughs) And I think that senior surgeon was not saying that from a lack of sympathy, but more saying how hard it is, how hard you make your own life if you stand up for yourself in that environment. And that made me start to think about my own experiences of misogyny. I'm not trained as a surgeon, I should say, but just working, you know, within the medical environment, a lot of the experiences I could think back on that I'd witnessed or that had happened to me and it it really got me thinking about how I had just accepted this is part of the landscape. This is the place I'm going to work. I'm a doctor now. I just have to put up with this. And, yeah, it made me realise I wanted to work that into the story as a major theme. Hmm. And do you think your colleagues will read this book? Do you think those people that you've upset, well, not upset, I mean, I don't know if they're upset, but it I mean, what feedback do you think you're going to get? I'm I'm fairly sure I'll get some unsolicited <laughs> feedback. Yeah, you will. Good. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, otherwise, yeah. it's not real if if that doesn't happen. I mean, you, you're really exposing people in fiction. 
or yeah. exposing behaviour. Yeah, and it was. I guess I've had moments along the way where I it's challenged me a little bit, particularly because I still work in the hospital system. Yeah. Did I want to stick my neck out in this way? And I've had to come back to the fact that my experiences and those of women around me, I've talked to a lot of women who work in different fields in medicine and surgery, that I want to be authentic and true to that. So it will disturb some people and I'm sure I'll get some feedback that it's not the experience of the males or the men in in surgery. But I think that's a big call, right? Because Mm. we know that most women who are harassed or assaulted never report it. So how would you know? Mm. How would you know? I often say to people who've written a memoir or who've written, you know, the story of their life, a biography, how nervous were you about putting it out there in the world? Because, you know, your siblings, your parents, your cousins, the people you went to school with. I mean, did you worry about that? Yeah, I I definitely have had moments, perhaps my more sort of neurotic, insecure moments where I worry about how it will be received within the medical profession But, yeah, I guess I've just come to peace with the fact that I wanted to write an authentic book that explored these ideas and asked questions about what a misogynist culture lays the the ground for. And I'm not alleging that this is, you know, commonplace or happening everywhere. I wanted to ask some questions. I I want to have the conversations and get people thinking and I feel as though the book is going to achieve that. Mm, It's fiction too. We just let everybody know that. Do you think, do you think things are going to change? I think things are already changing, which is exciting and heartening. You know, we look at things like the colleges, the Australasian colleges of surgery and physicians, the college that I belong to, both have female um, heads of those organisations. I think that might be the first time in history, I could be wrong, but where both colleges are headed by women. They've both invested a lot in the last five years or so in understanding the experience of women in terms of harassment and assault in the workplace. So I think there is already more awareness, more representation of women in positions of power. And there are a lot of progressive hospitals and organisations where things are a lot better for women. I think it's just those kind of traditional bastions of old culture perhaps hasn't quite uh, hasn't quite met me too yet. Mm-hmm. So if you had a daughter, and I'm not quite sure if you, if you do, I know you've got two children, but and she decided that she wants to be a doctor, what what would your response be to, to that? Wow, that's an awesome question. I do have a daughter. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> it, it's interesting because um, we were chatting recently. She's 15 and we were talking about she's not interested in medicine. I think she's probably heard me whinge too much about the hospital system for that, but she was talking a bit about law and I was thinking of Brie Lee's um, memoir, Egg, Eggshell Egg skull. I Thank think. you. Yeah. I think that is exactly right. It was a, yeah. that was a really powerful book to read. Immediately, my brain went to that story, and I guess I'd have some trepidation because I think it's harder for women in those environments. Having said that, she, you know, I do think things are shifting and changing, and I, I do hold optimism about this next generation of 
um, women and men actually to not allow those old cultural norms to be perpetuated. Mm. Susan White, we're out of time. Um, I've enjoyed that conversation very much. The book is called Cut and congratulations. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.